takes us a little while, but uh, even though we not, might not be Johnny on the spot when it comes to the email, you're always in our hearts, and uh, in our heart and in our prayers, and we appreciate likewise being in your heart and being in your prayers. I want to talk to you a little bit today um, about the tipping point. The tipping point. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called The Tipping Point, and Malcolm Gladwell's book uh, really became a nationwide bestseller whose influence would help to initiate paradigm shifts in fields ranging from marketing to public health, uh, you name it. What Malcolm tried to do was to answer the questions as to why some trends, why some ideas, why some products achieve exponential popularity while others don't. Based on his in-depth research, Gladwell identified three key factors that played a role in determining whether a particular trend will quote-unquote tip into a wide-scale popularity movement. Gladwell had three particular concepts that he believed set the stage for a particular event or product or idea being pushed over the tipping scale, the tipping point. The concepts, the concepts were the law of the few, the stickiness factor, and the power of context. The law of the few, stickiness factor, and the power of context. The law of the few, Gladwell contends, uh, is that before widespread popularity can be attained, a few key types of people must champion an idea, a concept, or a product before it be and can actually reach the tipping point. You have to have a certain few key types of people. And in his book, he mentions what kind of people those are. But you must have the law of the few. It doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take a lot, Gladwell contends, to actually push something. It takes a certain few key people. Secondly, Gladwell defines the stickiness factor as being an important factor, and that being the quality that compels people to play, pay close attention. The stickiness factor is that thing, that something that's very hard to define, but it is what causes people to pay close attention, sustained attention, to a product, concept, or idea. And then maybe the most important is the power of context. The power of context is enormously important to the theory of Gladwell because within the power of context is the determining factor as to whether a particular phenomenon will tip into widespread popularity. It is the implications of a small variations in social groups and minor changes in a neighborhood or community environment that can cause a new idea to tip. Individually, the law of the few, the stickiness factor, the power of context, they have very little effect. But combined together, and especially within a certain frame of context, the tipping point can be reached. When all three are in play, the tipping point is near. 
for good or for bad, for better or for worse, up or down, in or out, freedom or lack of freedom, once the tipping point is reached, the landslide begins. That brings me to a story. I'm reading from Dateline Sources. Three members of a Kansas militia group were charged Friday with plotting to bomb an apartment building filled with Somali immigrants in the western Kansas meatpacking town of Garden City. Curtis Wayne Allen, age 49, Patrick Eugene Stein, age 47, and Gavin Wayne Wright, age 49, are members of a small group that calls itself the Crusaders, a group having militia and sovereign citizen ties. The men in question who were arrested had reportedly and allegedly stockpiled weapons, performed surveillance on the apartment building, and prepared a manifesto to be published after the bombing took place. If they are convicted, sources say the men, legal sources say the men could be sentenced up to life in federal prison without parole. Now this story has all the marks of a story the liberal mainstream media should long for. It's proof of the Islamophobia perpetrated by white Anglo-Saxon men who were fully armed and ready to perform an act of terror and racism upon a peaceful immigrant population, probably with AR-15s and Confederate flags somewhere in tow. The FBI agents who infiltrated the group claimed that they were immersed deep into a hidden culture of hatred and violence. They have detailed accounts of the Crusaders' meetings, video proof of stockpiled weapons, and even a copy of their manifesto. So, have you heard anything about it? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but you certainly didn't hear about it on mainstream media. Just a few moments before the podcast, I went on and checked on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, CNBC. Nobody is reporting this. And if they do, it's only a blurb or a mention. I happen to find the story buried on the back page of a news site. It's out there, but why isn't it front and center? And we've got Anderson Cooper interviewing... Uh, Trump's wife, that's main news. We've got reports of, of apparently Donald Trump has fondled, fornicated, or sexually assaulted every woman in the United States of America now. That's on the mainstream news. I mean, we've got Hillary, and she's some sort of, I don't know, hybrid thing that's being held together by medication. I mean, all of this stuff is out there in the news, but why isn't this one out there? It it has all the earmarks of a, of a story that the media should be sensationalizing. But they aren't biting. I mean, why? Why? Why is that? I mean, you cannot get any more waspish than these guys. You ought to Google them and look at their pictures. You want white? There they are. You cannot get any more white than these guys. They are as white as a jar of Hellman's mayonnaise. Why, why, why is this not on the front page of the news? White guys want to kill black guys. Headline story. White guys want to kill Muslims. Headline story. White guys stockpile AR-15s and write a manifesto. Headline story. White guys consider themselves the crusaders. Headline story. I mean, doesn't it strike you strange that you're not hearing about these guys? Why aren't they plastered all over the stinking news? So I want you to remember these crusaders I want you to remember this story and, and hold this story in your mind because there may be some connections taking place beneath the surface of consciousness of our nation, connections that truthfully and sadly are the death nail of our dying republic. So while you hold the Crusaders' story in your mind, let's talk about a story that is getting a lot of coverage this week. Of course, I'm talking about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is leading the headlines by telling us that everything in America is rigged. And man, are they mad about that. 
Donald Trump has broken the age-old rule. You can do anything you want, but don't call the system into question. Well, now he is. The elections are rigged. The media coverage is rigged. Criminal justice system that is not prosecuting Hillary Clinton is rigged. The IRS is rigged. The debates are rigged. The Republican Party is rigged. According to Donald Trump, it's all rigged. In fact, his exact words are, quote, it's a rigged, disgusting, dirty system. Well, is he wrong? I don't think so. He is right. He is right. He knows he is right. There's no doubt about it because he has been a part of that rigged system for 30 years. In fact, he is the first one to actually tell you that part of the way that he has made his millions is by taking part in the dregs of the corruption of the rigged system, by playing along with the rules and rule makers of the very corruption he is now running against. One of the fascinating things about his campaign is that if you listen closely and read between the lines, his claim is not that he is a pure outsider. His claim is that he is actually an insider who has come out and therefore is best qualified to beat the insiders at their own game. His words, it is a rigged, disgusting, dirty system. But Donald, Donald may, and I stress may, be doing something wittingly or unwittingly, far more useful than a mere right or left paradigm. A paradigm which has long ceased to be the way America works anymore. Donald uses the rigging of the system. The claim of a rigging of a system that we what we all know is so, to feed into his followers' growing anger at the rising sense of injustice they feel. Now, this is a tactic, good or bad, that all powerless statesmen, all powerless politicians, all those who are powerless but want to have power seem to resort to at the very last. I was recently reading and in finishing up a book uh, by Rob Goodman and Jimmy Sony called Rome's Last Citizen, The Life and Legacy of Cato, Mortal Enemy of Caesar. Cato was a politician, a senator, who stood against Caesar and Pompey as they tried to take dictatorial powers, I should say, from Rome. It's interesting that on page 70, this is what it says, quote, Cato denounced the sham of an election and railed against Caesar and the councils. Quote, Cato said, as if inspired from heaven, he foretold to the citizens all that would happen to their city. He identified the fate, the fate of the Republic and its liberty with his own words. Why, he cried, have Pompey and Caesar, or Pompey and Crassus done this to me because they are afraid of me. Now, all you have to do is take that statement from Cato and replace it with the words, uh, Priebus for the Republican Party, Hillary for the Democrat Party, uh, Megyn Kelly, Fox News, CNN, Anderson Cooper, whatever it is. Donald Trump, the megalomaniac that he is, is using the very similar words that Cato used almost 2,000 years ago, denouncing the rigging of the system. And it is a rigged system that everyone knows. But he is doing so to feed into his followers growing anger. And the rising sense of injustice that they feel. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. Anger got Donald Trump elected in the primaries. Not reason. Not he was the best man for the job. Not that he was a Christian. Not that he was even a conservative. Not that there weren't enough choices. It was anger that got him elected. Mar Marco Rubio, he was cute. We all thought he was sexy and romantic and that's great. But no, he wasn't doing it for us. Ted Cruz, he's probably the closest to a constitutionalist, and we probably should have voted for him, but he wasn't doing it for us. Rand Paul, nice Jerry Curl, wasn't going to cut it. 
Chris Christie. He's the fat baker who serves up your, your honey buns and your donuts. Everybody kind of likes him and his rough talk from Jersey. Not going to do it. We wanted somebody who fed our anger, somebody who understood our anger, someone who claimed to tap into our anger, and anger got him elected. Now on the campaign trail, he may vary every once in a while talking about issues, but he's quick to come right back to the main thing. And the main thing is whipping them into a frenzy, fanning the flames of dissatisfaction. But the danger is that the dissatisfaction is growing, growing to be an overwhelming sense of fight or flight. And many have flown. The question before us today is what about those who are tired of fleeing? What about those quote unquote crusaders, so to say, who see the hordes of barbarians and Muslims swarming across the land. Are they prepared to fight? Or rather, are they being pushed into a fight? The mounting level of disgust we feel toward the government, politicians, the media, it, look, it seems to get worse and worse every single passing week and passing day. You want to throw up? Turn on the TV. It, but it, it's becoming more than disgust. It is becoming more than frustration. It is morphing into something that is profoundly terrifying and dangerous to a free republic. It is becoming desperation. Desperation is always a danger for the people and always, always a blank check for the government, for the powers that be. Desperate people, ladies and gentlemen, do stupid things. And governments react to desperate people by doing horrible things. Desperation is out there, and it's building to a crescendo as we seem to be getting closer and closer to this tipping point. We all feel it. We're on the verge of a tipping point. Something's bound to happen. Tension is building. Anger is building. We just need something to occur, something to ignite the spark. Because once ignited, once the problem is presented, that allows the powers that be, powers that are firmly rooted in each party, firmly entrenched in the bureaucracy in the halls of our government, powers that are at a conscious level beyond what we realize, it allows them, as David Icke has so succinctly stated, to present a solution to the reaction to the problem. Problem, reaction, solution. It has always been this way with tyrants. Tyrants, true tyrants, operate at the chess level, not checkers. It operates at a level that sees long down the road, that understands the best slaves are those who desire slavery. They, of course, don't fully recognize it's slavery until it's too late, but by then, it is too late. Ask the German man who saw his way of life eviscerated, evaporated after World War I. Everything he had taken from him, and for what? What was the fight over? Nobody knew, nobody understood. Who won? It was supposed to be a draw, a stalemate. But at the end of the day, it was the German middle-class man who suffered, who saw his wife and children go hungry, his business taken away from him, his government destroyed, his fatherland turned upside down as once he once knew. Once a proud man, now overrun by sorrow and desperation. Frustration turned to desperation. And desperation, like raw meat, draws the wolves and the lions, and the tigers, and the predators of this world. Here comes Hitler to the rescue. 
Hitler does not come on the scene promising death to millions of Jews. He doesn't come on the scene promising death camps. He doesn't come on the scene promising global war. He doesn't come on the scene promising a mark that will be given to the, to the German people that will never be erased. No, he comes promising hope to those that are hopeless. He promises protection to those that are fearful. He promises uh, revitalization and, and help and joy to a desperate group of German citizens. He literally promises to make Germany great again. Crusaders arrested, mentioned just enough in the public consciousness, but, but nothing more. Trump aggravating the already stoked fears and fight-or-flight reaction welling up in millions of people that are becoming desperate. A control matrix wearing the costume of our once great and free government of the people, for the people, by the people, now playing the long game, the game of refashioning the world as we know it. All of these things are there. Now enter predictive programming. Predictive programming, a theorized method of mass mind control proposes that people are conditioned through works of fiction, such as books, movies, or television, music, media, social media, and that they are presented social contexts, social constructs of reworked normalcy. What once was odd or frightening or scary no longer is odd or frightening or scary. No longer is it that way. Why? Because the people have been conditioned. What is now is normal because they have been programmed to accept it as such. Predictive programming. They are conditioned to accept planned future scenarios. We tend to look at mind control of a society or of a culture through the 19th century lens of brute force. Tanks in the street, soldiers carrying guns, storming houses, people tied to wooden chairs and electrocuted. That has rarely worked, and when it does, it only works for a short time. What lasts, what truly lasts, what truly changes a society is the re-education of the mind, of the soul, of the collective consciousness of the mind of a culture and a people. Not force forced upon the masses, but rather force called for by the masses to protect them from a created and conditioned fear of something or someone out there that will destroy their way of life. Alan Watt, the researcher who defined this phenomenon, said, it is, quote, the power of suggestion using the media of fiction to create a desired outcome. He said it is the power of suggestion using the media of fiction to create a desired outcome. But what if? What if it is not just the media of fiction, but what if it is the fiction of media that creates the condition, lying there dormant under the surface, but there nonetheless, only waiting for the tipping point to be tipped, for the right circumstances and courses of events and actions to be set in motion? Are we being conditioned? Are we being programmed right now? In other words, are we being programmed? The stories we consume through TV, the programs, movies, the news. Are they conditioning us? Are they indoctrinating the public into accepting a planned future? A future so carefully planned and crafted and prepared for us. A future so grand and big that it cannot, it must not be forced upon the masses. Rather, it must be asked for by the masses. Predictive programming has been on the radar screen of the outside-the-box thinkers for some time. 
And there are claims of many, many different examples across culture, across media of predictive programming. A perfect example to some is the claim uh, that 9-11 was a predictive programming conditioned event. Some claim in the very simple things like The Simpsons. There's an episode that conditioned minds to the reality of 9-11, the normalcy. An episode of The Simpsons shows Bart holding a flyer predicting something will happen in New York on 9-11. The Lone Gunman, feature, a TV show, featured the attempted destruction of the Twin Towers. And Back to the Future shows Doc Brown dying in a terrorist attack taking place at, quote, the Twin Pines Mall. Even in The Matrix, Neo's uh, birth date on his driver's license, or I believe it's his expiration date, is 9-11-2001. Now, according to predictive programming theorists, these fictional events were carefully planted within the media we consume in order to subconsciously prepare us for these events. Events that were well planned in advance by the powers that be. Were they consciously planned? Or were they planted, embedded into the dimensional subconscious thinking of the masses by a power far darker than we realize, a power adept at deception, the father of lies, a master of subtlety, the angel of light. It is interesting to read the story of the fall of Adam and Eve again. There's a very careful statement made by the scripture that says, when the woman saw that it was good for food, that fruit that she had been denied by God, that fruit that she had been warned of by God not to eat, from the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. What did the serpent, the most subtle of all the beasts, say? You shall not surely die. And how did he prove it to her? She saw that it was good for food. How else could she see that it was good for food except it was eaten in front of her? Except an image was placed in front of her, conditioning her mind, convincing her soul that it was normal to eat the fruit, that nothing bad would happen, that it was normal. It has been said that the best way to predict the future is to invent the future. So again, we ask, are we being conditioned? For some event that will tip the tottering republic into a mayhem that only the powers that be can deliver. Why are we not hearing about the crusaders? Why? It doesn't make sense. Any kind of Islamic shoot-up, bomb, scare, threat. I mean, Russia goes to DEFCON. And I don't know how we know that, but supposedly we do. We go to DEFCON. I don't know how we know that, but supposedly we do. I mean, every little nuance to every little thing. But this, the Crusaders, well, they're pushed to the back. Why is that? Again, Alan Watts said it is the power of suggestion using the media of fiction to create a desired outcome. We ask, what if it is not just the media of fiction, but the fiction of media that creates the condition? Can conditions be created? Are the powers that be strong enough, wise enough, patient enough to create a condition whereby martial law, governmental, absolute, tyrannical power is not just forced upon the people, but accepted and asked for by the people with arms wide open. A condition that create a fiction of media that creates the condition lying there dormant under the surface, but there nonetheless 
only waiting for the tipping point to be tipped, for the right circumstances and courses of events to be set in motion, for crusaders to take matters into their own hands. When is that going to happen? When will it be allowed to happen? For a candidate to be elected and then to be attacked or assassinated, for a candidate to be elected through obvious means of treachery and corruption and deceit and rigged election, for a seemingly unconnected set of events to be set in motion, not by checker players hopping around the board, but by master chess players who have made their moves through the lens of centuries and bide and count their time in decades and generations. Are we at the tipping point?